1: Awesome to welcome New Haven Head Coach Ted Hotelling to the Basketball Podcast. Ted Hotelling has led New Haven to back-to-back appearances in the Northeast 10 Conference Championship game, a pair of nine total appearances in the Conference Tournament, and his teams have earned four bids to the NCAA Division II National Tournament, the most recent coming in 2022. With 173 career victories, he stands as second among nine head coaches in the history of New Haven Men's Basketball Program, and with 27 more wins, would become just the second coach in program history to win 200 or more games. Ted, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. This is, uh, this is, this is pretty good stuff. Uh, listen to your podcast a lot and know when I'm on the road recruiting. Uh, it's always a, a point of conversation when we talk about basketball immersion.
1: And uh, you're listening to uh, quite a bit on the road in the, uh, in the college ranks. Yeah, a lot of fun. And uh, looking forward to talking to you. Uh... Been able to deep dive a little bit and uh, just, just so many great phrasing. So I'm excited to share some of those and get more in depth on those. So uh, I'm going to start with uh, our job as a coach, and that's to seek a basketball solution to our questions.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we've all been doing this for a long time and it's kind of our program philosophy with our players. So I, I always think you want to embody and have the same behaviors uh, that you expect of your players. So our, our whole thing is no blame, complain, defend in our program. And I think the same should apply to your coaching staff, right? So easy to, uh, when things don't go well, blame a player or your players. Um, And I think the job of coaches is to evaluate ourselves, try and find better solutions to help our players. And for us, I tell our staff all the time, we want basketball solutions. You know, let's not do the captain obvious stuff at halftime. Don't tell me we're not playing hard. I, I can see that, but maybe it's the angle of our ball screens. Maybe it's, we need to change coverages. So. I just think we're trying to get to the point where we're helping our players as best as we can. And for me, um, avoiding the blame, complain, defend game is is pretty important for me and our staff. And
1: I think it allows our, our players to play better uh, on a daily basis. And you also say, like, the most important questions are why do we lose and why do we win and evaluating those, right?
0: Yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's why do you lose? I think that's uh, in order to win, right? Bill Parcells, you have to figure out why you lose. and for us it's it's pretty simple um you know, number one is always turnovers right you if you can't uh, handle the ball, pass and catch, if you can't get shots, it's gonna be very hard to beat your opponents, and that's in any sport you know we oftentimes will take like by week five of the NFL season, we'll show who the best teams are with uh turnovers, right and least number of turnovers, and typically it's always the teams at the top of the league uh, standing so uh turnovers are very important, and I also think shot selection because that leads into Uh, poor floor balance, um, you know, uh, just bad things. Uh, We might not be able to decide, uh, you know, impact if our guys make the shots, but we want good shot selection. And then the other three things on the defensive end, obviously uh, field goal percentage, E field goal percentage, uh, which goes into turnovers and shot selection, but sprinting back on defense, being organized, um, teams that don't sprint back, that's an indictment on the head coach, right? It's it's lack of demand. um, It's lack of organization. It's kind of leaving it up to them to kind of figure things out on their own and i don't think that's probably a good recipe for success um we want to avoid fouling and be very disciplined particularly when it gets into the paint like with hand discipline showing the referees our hand um and then blockouts. um you know we've had shorter teams when i first got here it was a little bit harder to control that but we can control you know out to hit in to get right get the eyes to bodies and at least get contact um and maybe some guys are taller than us that will get it but we can control that part of the game as well so if we can control those things and minimize mistakes, it allows us with good talent to probably win more than we lose.
1: Well, what I like about how you phrase these things, too, is that you consider these the things that you can impact the most as the coach. So it's not this unrealistic thing. These are the things that you directly impact.
0: Yeah, I can coach these. Right. So we're, we're just trying to coach and correct the right things. Um, you know, I don't want to be yelling and screaming about effort. Uh, I don't want to be yelling and screaming for every single thing that happens but our players do know if there's a mishandle in practice, we're gonna probably stop practice. The whole team might go pass and catch. We might do a passing drill. Uh, if there's a missed blockout, we might do pad blockouts just to reinforce the idea that, hey, this is important to us. Um, you know, you can be anything you want and as a coach, you can't be everything. And I think as you get older as a coach and you evolve, you know, you have to pick and decide what things you're really gonna emphasize. And for me, it's always what causes you to lose. So, and, um, you know, with our staff, we're going to try and coach those things every single day. And um, when we see them, we're going to try and address them and correct them immediately.
1: Well, and I, I love like some of the phrasing that you put behind or ideas you put behind limiting turnovers. And I'll share two with you to talk about a little bit more. One is silence condensed.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, silence condones. We had a, a real yeah we had a drill the other day and you know there was three turnovers and we stopped practice we talked about why we value the ball why it's important uh why winning teams don't turn it over and then we went to our you know first day passing drill so go right back to it find a partner land on two feet catch it with two hands catch it with two eyes step with every pass you know we're a one pit one pivot program um, uh, passing catch on the move um uh, throw it on target which is on our chin so you know, I, I think if you don't correct things that are important to you, it, it does give your players an indication of maybe it's not that important uh, in winning. And I think we're always trying to, like, at least
1: coach the right things. And for us, turnovers are
0: really, really uh, a priority for us.
1: So silence, condones, and then, of course, film and this concept that the first clips are always turnovers that you share.
0: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I used to be a guy who showed 35, 40 clips. And, uh, you know, Mark Twain, right, didn't have time to write a, a short letter so i wrote a long one and it takes a little bit more work to condense it to get the right message across maybe the right message for that particular team or for that particular day but for us turnovers are always going to be um first and foremost first three clips and we show 19 clips or less usually after practice maybe a few more after games and if we want to show more that'll be individual film with individual guys but i think the one thing with turnovers is you know you have to be able to coach it too not just show hey, we don't turn it over. So there's usually a reason, right? If you drive to the paint and travel, it's, you know, we're trying to play off two feet. Um, If you mishandle it, it's, hey, catch it with two eyes. So I think there has to be some sort of teaching point with the turnovers as well and not just point out the mistake or error. There has to be a teaching point to it. And I think that, you know, it's kind of linked to our offense in a big way, but, um, you know, and and sometimes if there's not a teaching point, we don't show it, right? There's no gray area. Um, It doesn't give a kid a chance to defend himself. It should just be very black and white. Hey, this is something that we all need to see. This is how we're going to correct it. We're going to move it to the floor after practice. Our first part of practice is going to be, hey, landing on two, right, not being in or hurting the paint. So I do think that's a big part of, um, you know, coaching what's important.
1: Um, just talking about that a little bit then in terms of that film, I mean, you're talking about you know, obviously the value of giving them the reason or something that we can do to yep. fix it. Do you find that most of the time, is it a decision or is it a skill execution?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of both. You know, every team is different. Every kid needs something different. Um, I think you're trying to message your team every day with film, right? And I think, you know, part of our job is to seek basketball solutions. You know, every day we're watching practice film and we're trying to figure out, hey, why aren't we being successful at making shots? Or, you know, why are we turning it over? And that's the solution we're trying to show our team with film. So. Um, I think the skill part of it sometimes is addressed on the floor, right? And we're working on the same things every day. So I think they're pretty familiar with that. Um, The decision making, I think, for amateur players is a little bit harder, right? Reading the low man on pick and roll, um, how far do they pull off on an indirect, right? Uh, Can you read the roll guy? Just smaller things. And that's a little bit harder to get amateur players to do well. Um, So yeah, and that sometimes is individual film as well not all of our players use ball screen. So if we're gonna talk about ball screen, that skill and reading the decisions, that might be we just bring in our three-point guard, say, hey, let's take a look at what we're doing here. Tell me what the read is. We might pull up film from Danny Upchurch from 2017-18, who was an unbelievable pick and roll player, and say, hey, watch Danny on this play. Watch what he's looking at. Look at the read here. You know, they're pulling off from the far corner. That should be your pass, right? So, um, yeah, it is contextual, I think, the job is to watch, practice, film, and then correct the mistakes each and every day. Sometimes it's skill, sometimes it's decisions, um, but then also it could be just individual attention for uh, for each kid.
1: Well, I like that, you know, just in fact using a past player, because that connects your players to the past, uh, You know, yep. connects the present to the past. And Absolutely. you know, I think we're good sometimes at using, say, NBA examples or something like that, which are great, but it's also great to connect to players that have played for you before, and this is how they're doing it and why they're doing it
0: yeah absolutely so and we we name drills after former players now we have exome corner the right corner where justin exome who was the all-time leading three-point shooter in new haven history that's where he made a majority of his shots uh our new york package is based on justin exome right we have brooklyn manhattan and queens plays with with the two guard that you know we used to get him shots um so yeah we have we have a ton of things that we name for players too and sometimes on the fly you know kendall mcmillan did a barkley and a scrimmage at assumption and it's now called the McMillan from here on out. So um, I think guys enjoy it. I think, um, you know, it does connect you to the past. I think it's how you build a good program, right? There were guys that came
1: before you, but and it's uh, I think it makes it a little more fun, too. It's great stuff. You also have the Tom Brady drill. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah.
0: So I think uh, Tommy Hunt played for us, and Tommy Hunt's a huge uh, Patriots fan. And uh, for obvious reasons, they've been dominant for the last 20 years. I'm a Broncos fan, but we won't go very far into that. <laughs> but uh, Tom Brady one night in the rain was like, I don't know, 22 of 23, right, uh, throwing the ball. So we just have a drill where it's, uh, it's, you know, we talk about not abandoning the ball. So if you're pressured, take a five-second call. We reward you for a five-second call because we'd rather have that than you abandon the ball and give up a layup, right? We'll get back to set our defense. Kick it in the stands, throw it to the referee. So we're just always trying to have them some poise and some patience and not abandon the ball. So the drill is really five-on-five, five, no bobbles, must land on two feet. Must step with the correct foot. And uh, it's the first team to 50. It happens quickly. So if you do bobble it or you do travel or it's a bounce pass or it goes out of bounds, goes to the coach, the next team quickly gets it and there's no dribble. So, you know, we talk all the time, these guys are running down the middle in the NFL and catching the ball and, and going to be hit. And you know, there's no excuse for not passing and catching in basketball, right? You're not going to get hit. You're not going to get tackled. But uh, just trying to reinforce that. If Tom Brady can make 24, or 25 passes in an NFL game, we can probably connect on every one of ours in a college basketball game
1: so is it 50 passes amongst your team is that yeah so blue versus white 50 passes yep, yep. and then, and then you know, if they do take a the... five second call do they get the ball back or
0: you know what i give them a big hug okay <laughs> it is changed but we celebrate that right yeah and we we'll always say hey the crowd is going to yell at you the crowd's going to be like why didn't he pass and our program is going to understand that you did the exact right thing because that's a winning play right you got the turnover maybe it's a team turnover but People are looking at you, but a winning play was made uh, even when you look bad, right? Um, and sometimes a guy will kick it out of stands because we'll tell him that we'll kick it, kick it out of bounds. And again, we'll celebrate that. But just trying to get the notion of never abandoning the ball, right? Same thing in the paint. If it's a three second call and there's nowhere to pass to, you know, if you can't get up on the rim, that's okay, right? We just don't want to abandon the ball and lose our poise. But uh yeah, it's uh and then, you know, all the the details with passing and catching come into play with this drill, right? So it's Landing on two feet, stepping with your strong foot, uh, showing an outside hand, getting away from the defense. So all the things that we practice uh, preseason and first few drills of every season kind of incorporate into that drill as well.
1: Well, I love it. That Tom Brady drill, great example of a practical way to work on something that you emphasize. And I want to want to key in on something you said and get more in depth on this because I just had this discussion with a coach. Uh, the game slows down in the paint is essentially what you said, right? Yes. In terms of that, and you just referenced the three-second. So if they break the paint off the dribble, is it the same emphasis while they're dribbling to be able to probe a little bit and slow it down a little bit?
0: Yeah, so we have delayed decision-makers in our program, and we're mm-hmm. pretty, you know, we. I think the one thing that we do is, like, we identify, hey, everyone's different. You know, Kweishan Lane is a delayed decision-maker. He's got a little bit more time with the ball and with the dribble to make a decision because he's earned that trust. Other guys, hey, we want you to move it quicker. When you get in the paint, this is your reads. Uh, But really, you know, offense is one thing. Two to the ball, make a great decision. That's it, right? And that's all you have to do to be a good offensive team. Obviously, the passing and the catching and the layup making and the shooting is important. But we're just trying to bring two to the ball. So we're always just trying to put our guys in a situation where we want 90% layups. If if it's a 90% chance to make it, we want it. If it's not, then we're looking for reads majority of the time when we're driving the paint we're expecting a second defender and we're trying to land on two feet and then we have 2.9 in the paint right 2.9 to land on two feet find cutters find you know uh, a spray to the outside or maybe to pivot and find a jump shot in the lane or a shot in the lane so yeah we we work on it a lot some guys are a little bit of ours but we just don't want to play on the run and we don't want to be surprised by a second defender and And I think, you know, this. most good teams, right? The overhelp is a big thing now on the perimeter, but there are a lot of teams that are going to give help in the paint, whether that's with a big, full-body help off strong side, weak side. So we're going to
1: expect that and uh, want our guys to have a little bit more poise, purpose, and patience um, before they make a play. Okay, I love that. And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, showing clips of turnovers. I think you also referenced that uh, you like to show clips of rebounding in pre-practice
0: sure show the hit of the day right um show a crackdown show a guard being physically engaged with your tallest player showing why we win right hey this is this is why you win right because uh victor aloea didn't get the rebound but man he took away their big guy on a, on a cover down and uh you know just good things we don't do any contract rebounding drills so uh for obvious reasons i think at this level in particular you need your best players in the game that's universal for basketball but probably even more so at the lower college level. And I think as I've evolved and, and learned more, you know we have to get our best players to the game. Where are the ways we can eliminate unnecessary contact? So two things we do with the rebounding. Number one, we pad rebound every day. Eyes to bodies, out to hit, in to get, right? Never overhead, never walking in. Um, but yeah, we wanna get that ingrained in them. And we'll just say it over and over again. And then sometimes we'll have driving lanes and then you have to hit cover down, right? Hit the nail, whatever it might be. And then the other way you can do that is through film, right? To show, hey, this is what a good blockout looks like. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to coach blocking out without obviously having just bodies crashing into each other, uh, because I do want to get our better players to the game, but also with the discipline and the mindset that we are a a hitting team.
1: Well, and we've talked about film, obviously, part of this seeking a basketball solution is providing film for them because if they can't figure it out, they can watch it again, right? And that's the right. value of film is that it's not yeah. a one-time thing. If they're really struggling, this is something they can watch again.
0: Absolutely, and the coach can too, right? Um, you know, sometimes I'm, I have trouble seeing, hey, what, what's wrong here, right? And all I would tell our staff is, let's keep watching the film. The film's gonna reveal more and more. It might be one clip you watch eight times, right? Um, but same thing for for one of your players, right? The more they can watch, the more they can see maybe some areas of improvement, um, it does uh it does obviously help now you can overdo it too and i think i've gone gone to that place earlier in my career right 35 40 clips where sometimes you're not getting as much out of it and maybe you're just trying to show them what you know right as a young coach instead of having more purpose and um um just you know a little bit more uh uh specificity but yeah i do think it's an important tool in our program important for me obviously but uh generally important for our players as well
1: and the other part of this is advanced stats uh help you provide these basketball solutions yeah. right because you say advanced stats provide the clues
0: yeah so you know dean oliver basketball and paper right read it in 2000 2001 i was an assistant at yale and it was eye-opening because you look at a normal box score and the box score should be changed by the way right there should be a new universal box score that we all use instead of the generic one that we have now e field goal percentage like you know, I want to know our two-point field goal percentage before our three-point field goal percentage. Um, but that's not on the box, but we have to figure that out. But in 2001, I read that book, and I've actually had a lot of communication with Dean. He's a really smart guy and really sees the game in a different way. That, but that's another way to find solutions, right? So when I was at Yale, I created my own database for the four factors because I just wanted to see after the game, hey, what am I actually going to be looking at here? Like, what actually caused us to lose? And um, you know, it was eye-opening. It wasn't the only answer but it provided clues for when you're first starting watching film, you might be keying in on those areas, right? So if you're giving up 38% defense rebounding percentage, right, what was it? Was it penetration? Was it, um, you know, was it bad transition? Was it your double team in the post and the rotations are bad? So you're always trying to find, all right, why is this happening? But I think those, um, you know, those stats offer a ton of clues. I still do it to this day. Before I watch film, I always do four factors, number one. And I look at that, I highlight the areas that we weren't good at, um, and then we're trying to incorporate that in the practice the next day. If we're bad at two-point field goal percentage, we're probably going to work on the angles of the layups that we missed that day, right? Normally, it's probably a right-to-left drive for a right-handed player, maybe from the break. Um, Maybe it's on top of the rim. Um, But yeah, we're trying to find ways to help our players be better. And I think those stats offer a ton of clues. They're not the only answer, but I do think it helps you
1: paint the right picture and Probably uh, seek the things out on film that you need to see. Well, I love you giving an example of how you bring stats to life in practice. And I, I like asking coaches this now. And are there some other things that you do to be able to bring those stats to life for your players within practice?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. We have such a small staff here, right? This level. So we don't stat a ton of practice. I don't stat. Mm-hmm. I want them to watch the games during the game. We do a majority of our statting after the game. And um you know, we'll show the four factors to our team. Hey, this is where we fell short. This is where we really succeeded, but if we're gonna win, we have to do a better job in this area. So these were the four factors. We were really poor with turnover percentage. Let's watch the film today, let's get better. The drills pre-practice are gonna probably incorporate something to do with what we were, what fell short on, right? Um, It might be a rebounding drill. If we were bad defensive rebounding, it might be, hey, we're gonna hit the pads today, right? We're gonna, if we see a missed block out in live action, Probably stop practice, go right back to pad and rebounding just to reinforce. Hey, we have to be better in these areas. So, yeah, it's um, you know it's a day to day thing, right? It changes all the time. You're just trying to figure out your team, figure out what they can do well. Um, sometimes there's stats that you can't do well in. So, you know, 2010, 11, we had a small, small team and we were a bad rebounding team. Well, you know what? We better be better in other areas to compensate for that. So we didn't do a ton of rebounding drills, and I honestly didn't really talk about rebounding as much. Right? Talked more about three-point shooting, two-point field goal percentage. Hey, let's get to the line more, right, to add points. Uh, Maybe we need to get more steals if we can't rebound. So there's some stat that you might be able to manipulate a little bit differently if, in fact, your team isn't equipped to do well in that area.
1: Good stuff. And, uh, you know, we talked about shot selection a little bit. And, of course, shot selection is just more than just defining the type of shot your team wants, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, it's uh, reinforced every day. So uh, our shooting drills are telling you what shots we like all right, standstill threes, you should be shooting the same shot every day. There are only a certain guys that can do runaways in our program, um, and they know who they are. The other guys have to have their feet set before they
1: can shoot threes. Uh, are some, runaways being a moving catch to yeah, shot? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. If you're not stationary, if you're not set, you know, we're going to discourage that from some guys and uh, let them know, hey, you got to get to the spot quicker and shoot a stationary shot, but it's not reserved for everybody. And the offense is, you know, uh, the system is kind of Designed to eliminate some of those shots for certain players as well. Um, pull up jump shots are essentially reserved for certain players, right? And that's usually uh, junior, senior year guys who have earned that right and shown us they can do it. Um, and then we work a ton on layups. I just think games are won and lost in the paint. And I think at the amateur level, um, whether it's high school, AAU, uh, college basketball, uh, you have to make a high percentage of your layups. And we're trying to get 60% or better. I think we were 57% this year, which let our conference, but I think we can even be better in the future just with just better technique and uh, some guys finding their game in the paint, specifically going to their left. But yeah, so you... I, I just think it's reinforced every day. And we don't have a problem confronting our guys about this is good for you, but not good for him. It's not mm-hmm. the same for everybody. And, um, you know, we're pretty, um, we're pretty direct in that, uh, in that with that conversation.
1: We well, referenced the offense, uh, some of the two guard offense, uh, some yeah. of the beeline stuff you guys use and you reference this as our system is our talent so talk to us about that
0: yeah you know there's gonna be times where you have injuries
1: there's gonna be times
0: when you don't have the most talent in your league and i think we all go through that we all make mistakes i know i've been guilty that as well and i do think that if you have a system that you can fall back on you know it can serve as your talent right if you don't you know and and people know the story about john beeline's offense it's brilliant and you know, I still watch a ton of Michigan tape to this day. It's, it's my guilty pleasure in life. Um, but, you know, if you don't, he, did, he, he, he kind of did it because he didn't have a point guard when he was coaching junior college, right? Same thing. If we don't have good ball handlers, the system can be designed to not put them in ball screens or not have them be the facilitators or the drivers. Um, so I do think when you have good talent, we have less sophistication with our offense. When we have lesser talent, obviously, it's more sophisticated with the offense, more play calling. Um, I know the the Beeline family will talk about uh, less talent. The coach talks more talent. The ball talks, right? Um, meaning, like you're going to let them play out of the system, find their own shots. You know, make good decisions, uh, and you're going to trust them more. But there's been years where I've had to play call. You know, almost every play to the point of scripting maybe the first 15 plays of the game, keeping out of the three man's hand, uh, not reversing it through the five man. Like just small little things that you can design it where you can. You know, uh, try and limit you know some of the things that can get in the way of good offense
1: well it's a great way of uh, talking about how you can adapt for individual differences right and and most coaches have individual differences within their roster
0: yes yeah we all do so and then it changes from year to year the system is adaptable i think that's why i like it the most right it's easy for me to see Um, i do think guys they start in the same spots on every possession so it's easy to kind of see where devontre thomas is and who's matched up with him hey if, if he has a smaller player this is how we can call a post-up quickly without changing alignment. Um, yeah, it's uh, it changes year to year. You can manipulate the system. You can tweak it. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is, um, you know, we watch just New Haven basketball most of the time in the offseason so we can get better at what we do. It kind of eliminates the idea of trying to be everything uh, within offense, and there's a ton of good stuff that you see now. So almost too much information, right? You see a set by a team in France, the Celtic set, And you want to do it and for the most part we're disciplined to say no to that and hey this is how we can do it within our system we could probably get something a little simpler uh but within the framework of what we do
1: well that's great that's a great example of how to use the system in the modern era where you can be adaptable and flexible at the same time you use the system as the base and the template
0: right yep absolutely so and it's uh you know, sometimes it works better, yours and others. And obviously that's when you have good players, shot makers and things like that. But uh, the one thing it does do, it does control turnovers. Um, and there's specific vision, right? When you have a system, and I think that's a big term. I know Princeton used to use that back in the day, but you know, kids see the same things every day and they get better at it, right? And uh, there's specific vision, like there's specific reads. It's not motion. You're not reading a curl or a, a flight. Like it's just, it is very specific, which I think uh, helps guys get more comfortable helps guys see the same things every day and and be able to connect on passes, connect on patterns and find the
1: right shots. Uh, You've referenced practice a number of times. So just talking about practice, I love one of the points you make is about simplifying practice. And that's probably one of the biggest things I share with people is subtracting the fluff and getting more to the point. And uh, your phrasing is, what can we take out to make practice more effective, right? Uh,
0: Dina Rams, less but better, right? So, um, you know, I, I think,
1: As you and again, as you
0: evolve as a coach, you're always trying to do less and do it at a more effective way. So, you know, I I write my notes all the time, less but better, right? Which is, you know, Steve Jobs was uh, influenced a lot by Dieter Rams, who was the designer of Braun, and it really does, I think, come into play with basketball as well, right? You're trying to design a system that helps your players play well, and you want to be sophisticated but not complicated, uh, but not so simple where it's, you know, it's not useful. so yeah, we're always trying to take away. And I just think that if I don't see it on film or don't see it in games, I'm not going to put it into practice. Um, and that's the reality of it. So if it's not in games, it's not in practice. It's not in uh, our practice film. We're just not going to utilize it. And then there are, again, there are sometimes you have different teams, and sometimes you know we we've had years where we haven't had any post up guys. We don't work on posting up. Um, you know, uh, just we have guys who aren't good at ball screen. We don't work on ball screen. So I just think you're trying to. Be really, really simple in your approach, but not be so simple where
1: lacks uh, effectiveness. Hey, coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballimmersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and eliminating the fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. That's awesome. And the other thing you reference is obviously the pace of practice and how you fill in the gaps and Clearly, basketball is a game of change, so this is important.
0: Yeah. Uh, went to Fran O'Hanlon's practice at Lafayette, and the first drill they did, they were changing their jerseys. And I'm like, what the heck are they doing here? We, it's the first drill we do every single year. Fran O'Hanlon is a great coach at Lafayette.
1: Absolutely. Really
0: a great human being, but used to love watching his teams play. Just thought they were just really fun to watch. Uh, but yeah, basketball is a game of change. And uh, our first drill we do, first practice every year is one minute on the clock, change your jerseys. How many times have you gone to practice and you're going blue and white, and these guys are sauntering around and trying to figure out what color it is. And we're just trying to give the idea that we have to change quickly from A to B, B to C, drill to drill, offense to defense, defense to offense, different matchups, different coverages. I think it's just a great way to represent, hey, we are a team that values change. And then I think we're always trying to fill in the gaps in between each drills. So our thing is always be dribbling, A, B, D. So if you're, you know, everyone should have a ball all the time. If you watch little kids soccer, every kid has a ball. So we've we've adopted that in our program. Everyone should have a ball pre, pre-practice for the first 30 minutes, always dribbling. Um, there should be no wasted time. Um, but yeah, just changing from one thing to the next is really, really important. And we just try and fill the gaps with urgency. Fill the gap with a skill, meaning if it's not your rep, you should be dribbling, probably with your weak hand and moving the ball in your hands. Um, just do something to maybe gain a little bit of an advantage that can help you along the way.
1: I love that. I mean, for for my daughter's youth team, everyone, even when they go get water, they're dribbling. They must dribble, dribble while they're getting water. Absolutely, right? yeah. So I'm curious, and, how do you handle water breaks or free throws or different things that potentially slow down practice in that way?
0: Yeah, just get water on your own.
1: Yeah, not, that's what we uh, used to do.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm, you know, Guys don't have to ask me. They can just go get water, right? We have our guys sub each other out. We don't have coaches do that. Sometimes you kind of get a good feel for your team too, right? Who who comes out? Who's a good teammate? Who like says, no, I don't want to right now. Like just, you just get a glimpse of who they are. And that's what we're trying to do every day with all this film, right? Um, But yeah, we're not a big water break team. Just get water if you need it, okay? If we do get water, when you get back, you should be doing something. You should be shooting free throws. You should be dribbling. You should be dribbling. You should be made taking corner threes. Uh, you should be doing rapid hooks if you're a big guy. Just fill the gaps with something um, that's going to help you become a better player.
1: Well, I love this. Maximizing time on task, active learning time, such a huge part of teaching. Yes. And of course, one of the biggest time sucks of management time is us as coaches talking. So talk to me about that.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've gotten to the point where I notice more and I talk less. And um, I think you gotta be very intentional about what you're trying to coach, um, what you're going to allow, and um, what you're going to stop practice for. For me, primarily, it's behavior. Okay. It's disappointment after a jump shot, uh, disappointment not getting back in transition. I think that uh, how I've evolved as a coach is we're still trying to coach the skill. We can do that later the next day in practice without me stopping it for five minutes, or I can do it on the side with a young man or have an assistant on the side. But we are really, really vigilant about behavior and how you talk to your teammates. So if it's uh, a BCD situation, or if you defend yourself like your coach, we are gonna stop and we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna stop for turnovers. We're gonna directly, uh, and we, but we might do a drill uh, instead of me talking. Um, but yeah, I talk less in practice and try and notice more, take notes as I walk around. Um, I watch them shoot. I want to see who's short. Are they tired? I just think you're constantly trying to receive data, try and help your players play better and help them win. And when you talk too much, it's really, really hard to do that. And um, I think that's, um, for me, how I've evolved is just letting things happen a little bit more, watching more, interrupting less, talking less, and being really confident in, in saying, hey, it's okay. I do that because... We can address it tomorrow, or I can address it with him after practice, or hey, I can create a drill for that in some way, shape or form, pre-practice for this young man, or I can talk to him on the side. So yeah, I just, I, you just don't want to interrupt flow, and it's, uh, it shouldn't be a one-man show where you're just trying to talk the whole time in practice.
1: I, I love, by the way, your simplified explanation of playing more five-on-five, five, which is players get to see what they are going to see. And uh, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but that's such an important part of that, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So, well, the other part of this is, you know, I played for Doc Sowers, who is an incredible college basketball coach. I mean, just great, a great experience for me at the University of Albany. And, um, you know, I I played for a high level coach, but I was always dying to play more five on five. And at the time that was the part hole method, a lot of drills. And I would remember practice ending too quickly and just dying to play more five on five. And You know, as I thought in the summers and years past, I was like, you know, our guys need to have some share in this as well. What do they want? They want to play more. If you ask any player what they want, they want to play more, okay? And um, they want to drill less. Now, it has to be, you know, a good balance there. But I do think playing more is what they want. I'm willing to give that to them. And I think we can coach out of that as well a little bit more effectively, okay? Um, And we get more on film. We get more to show them it's hard to film drills right because they're playing the drill but when you play a 5 on 5 we're also getting a ton more data because we can just watch practice film a ton and actually have more data to show them as well so yeah and and the game is a 5 on 5 game it's, you know I know small sided games is all the rage particularly with soccer and some sports like that and with basketball and i i do believe in some of those maybe with individual workouts but i think when we have our whole group together we want it to be a five-on-five, five, maybe a five-on-four game, right, to, to play some advantage with some restrictions. But uh, they need to play five-on-five. Five. They need to see what they're going to
1: see uh, in the games. Yeah, I couldn't agree more at the college-university level. That's the most effective way. And you referenced coaching them while playing. And, you know, that seems to be a debate amongst coaches. But most of the coaches that debate it are the ones that only play a little bit of five-on-five five in practice. So then the players don't want to be stopped. But if you play a lot of five-on-five, five, yes. they are more comfortable stopping it, aren't they?
0: Yes. Yeah, and you know, I think you have to be good enough too to go. Hey, let's go three trips. Let's go five trips, and then coach one thing afterwards. Right? Again, you can't coach everything. You got to pick your spots and what's important to you. And I think every time you're doing a five on five, it could be a transition drill for five on five. Well, coach transition, right? Give your assistant something to coach. Maybe maybe uh, maybe Major Majak needs the offensive rebound more. Well, hey, make that your assistant coach's responsibility and take it off of your plate, right? Because you can't be everything to everybody, and you can't be everything that you want to be. you got to pick and choose. So if it's a transition drill, I'm going to be watching transition, and I'm going to be coaching just our organization in transition. Maybe it's we didn't sprint hard. Maybe we were turning before we got to the three-point line to put our chest on the ball. Maybe the guy didn't get to the backside. Uh, Maybe there was no coordination with the small and the big. And I think you can go three or four trips, five trips, before you can coach it and talk about it and set it up to kind of like figure that out.
1: One thing that really stuck out with from some notes that you shared with me was this concept of strong hand finishes only with a question mark. And I've had this conversation with NBA no. on down about again the value of a weak hand finish versus a strong hand finish. So, have you done some numbers and added some uh, some weight to this?
0: Um, I haven't. Um, mm. You know, I, I usually do projects every summer, and it's something different every summer. This year, I did PER for our last mm. twelve seasons for every player that played in the program and. Tried to figure out how much we improve from freshman to sophomore, sophomore to junior, junior, senior uh, overall. So, what can we expect a junior to be as a senior? Just things like that. But one year I did just do a deep dive into NBA. Tony Parker, obviously, is probably the greatest example. And then, you know, your players show you who they are every day and you just got to watch them. And this goes back to noticing if you watch, like we do layup drills for all 15 minutes every day, just watch them and watch who can make a left handed layup and who can't. And really what we're trying to tell the kid is, hey, you might not be great at this. Maybe this is something two years from now where we're good at this. Let's try to get back to our right hand all the time. Or let's try and beat him to the rim on a strong hand of finish. And I do think, you know, uh, right handers are better with their right hand. And it's just obvious. I don't brush my teeth as well with my left hand. If I worked on it every day for a year, maybe, but I'm still going to be much better at my right hand. So we don't discourage it as much as we encourage getting back to your right hand. I think the hardest thing for amateur players is driving to the left. If you're a right-handed player, driving to your left, and then finding your game in the paint. So initially, what we tell guys is, I don't want you to do 50 moves. Show me your game in the paint, and let's take a look at it, right? It's the same thing with post-ups. We have auditions. Hey, everyone down here, post-up. Let's see who can do it. They're going to show you what they're good at and what they're comfortable with. Some guy who does 50 moves, yeah, go down the other end and shoot threes now, right? But I think you're just trying to take a tally and just watch what are they good at? How can we make them better? And then there are times where we say, hey, we're going to take away your left hand. I think you should only shoot with your right hand right now. These are the ways that you can do it. Because so I think you have to give them a solution too. You can't just say, don't do it. You have to say, hey, let's get back to a spin. Let's get back to a hook. Let's try and beat it, right? So I think that uh, there are teaching points involved in layups that you can identify that they can use. But yeah, I, I am a proponent of strong hand finishing, finishing, um, but not for every
1: kid. I think it is contextual. Sure. Everything's in context and situational and individual differences. But I love that notion of the audition because I think that's true too, in the sense that, you know, you want to help them find their best solution. And just by having that process there, it also connects to what you said a little bit about uh, removing things or subtracting things to help them be more effective.
0: Right. Yeah. So auditions, again, they're, they're telling what you can do every day, right? And if you're watching enough film, you're trying to figure out what's their game. And then you're trying to help them play to their strengths. Um, so, yeah, and it's sometimes it's taking things out of their game that's unnecessary or maybe they're not good at. And, you know, that's the direct part of coaching that sometimes is uncomfortable for the player. But it's not to uh, lessen their effectiveness. It's to help them play well when the team's on the floor. So And the whole idea for us is, does the team well, does the team play well when you're on the floor? And if you're doing things that you're not good at, that's going to take away from the team goal of scoring the ball stopping the other team from scoring. So it's not a punishment. And then we'll say, hey, let's work on this in the spring, right, after the season. If this is something you wanna do, let's find a way to get in the gym and work on this so that you can be effective at it. But right now, it's probably not playing to your strengths.
1: I love that you've referenced noticing multiple times in this podcast. I just think that's such a huge thing that a lot of coaches miss is this concept of noticing. And not just in terms of, you know, are they doing something right? It's, are they improving? So I'm wondering, do you communicate what you notice to them in terms of improvement? Uh, Because I think generally, again, sports psychologists connect this as one of the most important things to building confidence and self-efficacy. That means not just belief in themselves, but belief in you as a coach to help them.
0: Right. Absolutely. You know, I think you try and find them doing something well, right? That's the key to teaching. Um, It's easy to constantly correct. And uh, it's the same way as a parent, right? You're trying to find Something that your son or daughter does well to give them the belief that they can do this. So whether it's more arc on your shot, you know, you might walk by a kid pre-practice and say, hey, the arc on your shot was beautiful yesterday. Man, it's it's going in. Just small little interactions, probably prior to practice, on the side. If they do something well, hey, man, you worked on this all summer. Man, you're really doing well at it. Yeah, I do think that's a really important part of our job now, particularly with young people um, these days because they are evolving and changing. And that's a good thing, right? Um, it means that we have to evolve and change and help them become the best version of themselves. It's not always a positive thing, but it's got to be more positive than negative most of the time right now. I do think they get turned off by just constantly being corrected, okay? And um, when they do make an adjustment or they do find success in something that you've talked about with them, man, show on film to the whole team. Hey, you know what? Uh, Sean has had trouble landing on tune the paint and finding players, man, watch this play. Sean, look at this. This is how you take coaching. Man, that's a great job. It might even be how you talk to teammates. You might find a clip of a just an interaction with a teammate and be like, hey, look at, look at Ty here. Ty is coaching someone in his position. That's leadership. Man, Ty, this is what we want for our program. So I think film also comes into play. I think the fun part of film is watch the little, like, like the celebrations around the side, right? When someone does well, uh, if someone's celebrating that, show that on film hey, look how happy Major is for your layup there, man. He's bought into you doing well. So yeah, we're just trying to, and film should be positive, right? I mean, there's times where it's gonna be, you know, hey, this is gonna be a hard film session, but I always preface that ahead of time. I'll say, this will be a hard film session. Hey, Chris, this is gonna be a hard film session for you. You know, you made a lot of mistakes yesterday. We're not picking on you, but we need to correct these mistakes that you're making so we all can learn from it. So I do think prefacing those things helps them um accept it more but yeah find find good things man all the time
1: yeah that softens uh, you know in terms of creating psychological safety that softens right. it immediately for them Absolutely. and they go in fully aware of what they're gonna see right. uh that's great I love that point point. and uh you know I also love how coaches like yourself have just helped evolve coaching from this cookie cutter approach again even though you run a system you, there's obviously individual differences and and things right. you can tweak but that goes even further. Uh, you no, know, I know Josh Merkel on the podcast talked about individual closeouts that players close out differently. Yep. One thing that you talk about is individual differences in how they rebound. Can you yes. talk about that?
0: Yeah. So you know, we'll divide. Just again, they show you who they are, and if you watch the film and you're isolating rebounding, you can see that this is Charles Oakley. He can block out and he can rebound. Right. Uh, this young man can't engage and release and go get the ball. Eric Anderson can go just go get the ball. Don't block out. So we will tell guys, hey, this is what you need to be as a defensive rebounder. Eric Anderson, and uh, I do think with rebounding, uh, from a recruiting standpoint, rebounding translates to every level. So we, we uh, recruited Eric Anderson. He led the country rebounding as a senior. He was player of the year in Argentina this year, which uh, what a great career he's had. But he was a great rebounder before he ever got to New Haven. Um, you know, I didn't really help him in that area. He was good at it we just decided just go get the ball man you have a great knack for it you don't need me to overcoach you and sometimes we'll tell our guys you have to overcome my coaching right i'm going to coach this but you have to overcome my coaching sometimes too and just make a play go get the ball Um, but with rebounding yeah i do think it's different not everyone's the same so we have a couple of things some guys just engage and don't go get the ball some guys will just go get the ball and some guys will engage and try and pursue the ball um smalls will full front So if you're a small we'll have you grab your shirt and full front we'll tell the referees before the game hey our smalls will full front rebounding we're not going to extend um but yeah we'll isolate what they do well and try and help them be successful in you know any particular area and that includes rebounding
1: well i love that i love again coaches like yourself sharing these ideas of you know the individual differences and how you actually bring them to life and apply them for players it's just great stuff and uh Another thing I know you talk about is this offensive philosophy that fits our defensive mindset. And we haven't talked about defense much with you, but uh, can you talk a little bit about how your offensive philosophy fits your defensive mindset?
0: Yeah. I I think they have to be married in a way that makes sense. So, um, you know, I know that the trend is to play fast. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You can't play fast if you are take care of the ball, have good shot selection and are great in transition because primarily that team's going to probably have to work at least 20 or more seconds to get a shot. So if you're playing at five seconds to get a shot, I mean, you're going to be, you know, they're going to be the New York Giants uh, with the Bill Parcells and possess the ball far longer than you are. And I don't think it's a good recipe for success. So I do think that you want to play with pace, right? In the offensive side, it doesn't mean you're playing fast and taking unnecessary shots or not valuing the ball, but we are a transition defensive team. We are Drink and recover. We are defensive rebound. We are not a great team at turnovers. It's just not my philosophy. It doesn't make that philosophy wrong. But because of that, you know, we need at least possess the ball at some point on the offensive end as well, because you can't be playing defense for three quarters of the game. So I do think you have to have something within your offensive system that matches what you want to be defensively. For us, it always starts with defense and we want to be great at both, obviously. But um, you know, we have I was talking to a coach the other day about two guard, you know, we run center entry. That's like our running game. That's when we slow the game down right by 10. That's like Tom Brady handing it off to his running back in the fourth quarter to kill clock and not just get it where it's more possession. So, yeah, I do think there has to be a marriage to both. And um, I think you've got to figure that out uh, pretty quickly in your tenure.
1: It's more of a curiosity about how you arrived at this, because obviously, clearly, you've expressed the the value of not turning it over on offense. The counter would be that getting them to turn it over on defense would be incredibly valuable. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh,
0: Well, probably the people I work for, you know, my first boss was Steve Clifford, um, who is an amazing coach, um, who I lucky enough to get to talk to here and there and, you know, ask him questions and learn from him. But, you know, that was my first job in college. And I observed how great he was at his job. He has a talent for coaching. great with players. He is an unbelievable defensive coach. And I just think, you know, from, from my opinion, if you're going to win big, you have to defend. And for me, it's shrink and recover. You also have to coach what you know. And that's what I know. And I could explore and try and learn more. But I've seen it every day and I've seen it work. And when you see something work, I think you're more apt to use it yourself. Um, so I've just been very lucky. I worked for Jay Young. Jay Young at Fairfield University, who is an unbelievable defensive coach. James Jones when he first got to Yale was more of a defensive uh, side of the ball coach. Um, and then worked for Jeff Neubauer, who is, to be honest with you, more of an offensive coach. It's a reason I went to EKU to learn how to be a better offensive coach. Um, but yeah, it always starts with defensive transition, being great on the ball, uh, not bringing two to the ball on the defensive end, not exposing yourself to drives, not exposing yourself to overhelps. And I do think for me, um, coaching what I know and shrinking and recovering is is the best way to do that.
1: I love it. I mean, just, again, so many great things that you've thought about and ways to express them that uh, are helpful for all of us. And another thing, and I know it's from a book, but the, the tyranny of the or versus <laughs> the genius of the end. Yeah. And I just love this phrasing. I love the way you explain it. So can you share that with us?
0: Yeah, so I was at Blair uh, Joe Mantegna ran a clinic at Blair, and I was sitting next to Dave Paulson, who won a national championship at Williams, great coach, one of the first guys, funny story, he was running Pacline at Williams, so he was doing a clinic, and we were all like, let him go to the middle, and it was funny, and he <laughs> wins the national championship a year later, and I see him at the Final Four, and he raised his ring and said, no outside drive, so it was pretty <laughs> awesome, but uh, I remember sitting with him at Blair cl- Clinic, and we were talking about, can you be great at both? And I was like, yes, you can. And I wasn't a head coach at the time. And he's like, yeah, it's easy when you're not a head coach. And I just often thought, right, if you want to be great at both, you that's thats how you win. That's how you win in the NBA. That's how you win at college. You have to be a great offensive team and a great defensive team. And you have to try and, again, marry your philosophy together where you can be efficient in both areas. But, um, you know, I think there's too much or, right? You can get high talent or uh high character. I think you can get both if you're vigilant and you're disciplined. I think you can give your guys some freedom and control turnovers. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be, oh well, we play fast. That's why we turn it over. I think you can be both, right? I think the holy grail is we can be great on offense and great on defense. And it's a huge challenge, right? And it's hard. Um And it comes down to a lot of times what your talent level is, you know, your task relevant maturity, right? Like how how mature they are in the task that you're giving them. But I do think that's uh, the goal for all of us, not to just look at one side of the floor, like be an expert at your job, be an expert on both ends, seek basketball solutions, have answers when your kids have questions, and then have answers when you lose. And I think that's the, uh, the whole goal, is to try and find solutions to be great on both sides of the ball.
1: It's tremendous. And it also strikes me how it connects to learning language. Obviously, we'd like to add yet behind things. right? Right. You can't do it, but it can't do it yet. You can do it. And then obviously, in terms of this, you can add the end, obviously, to everything and basically say, and what are you going to do about it? Or, and what are you going to do different? Or, and how are we going to change it? And that just applies so much to so many things we do as coaches, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And listen, that's what you're trying to get your players to understand, right? You can be a great player and a great student. You have to be disciplined. You have to, you know, edit your life. You have to say no to things, but you can do both. Um, And I think that's, you know, we're trying to get that across your players as well. You know, players, you know, uh, need to buy into everything that you're doing. They have to understand that the great teams, and we're trying to be top five in efficiency in both offense and defense. You know, after every game, we punch the numbers into our database manually, and we get an assessment of the entire league and where we stand in every single category. Um, And we're trying to be top five in both. Um, In 13-14, we had one of the best defenses in the league. We had... Really good players, great guard play, and Justin excellent Jeff Atkins, and an all-time great, uh, you know, player in, in Eric Anderson. And then the following, but we weren't great offensively. We were okay. I think we were seventh in the league, like top ten in the country defensively, but seventh in our own league in offense. And then we went no outside drives because the idea was we can't be as good as we want by just being great on one side of the ball. We're going to have to be good at both and uh, just decide to be less sophisticated on the defensive end. Um, so we could be better on the offensive end so that's you know some of the ways i think we have tried to do that and um you know some
1: years it's worked better than others last year we were fifth in offense first in defense um and we're able to have a good year incredible success consistency of success at new haven and uh you know talk to us a little bit about the culture around the program that helps uh helps you be adaptable and flexible and help you keep developing and your players keep developing
0: Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things happened. You know, we've we've had good success. When I took the job, um, you know, I think everyone, uh, hard jobs, tough jobs. I think you all know what kind of job you take. And, you know, this wasn't the best job in the league. And I remember telling the AD at the time, hey, our job is going to be like Billy being in the A's. We're going to try and minimize our down cycles to start. And we're going to try and be 15 wins or more every year. And I think we're going to have years where we can go 18, 19, 20 and be an NSA tournament team. And we were able to do that in 13-14. We had a really great year. Fell a little short in the NCAA tournament. And then we had a bad year in 16-17. Uh, and um, no BCD. It was it was all me. It was my fault. And I took ownership of it. And uh, I was at a coaching clinic in Dallas. And uh, a guy named Tim Kite, who wrote uh, Above the Line with Urban Meyer, worked with the Ohio State football program for a long time. I was sitting in the front row. I was one of the only basketball coaches there, mostly football coaches. and. He points me out and he says, Coach, do you have an offensive system? And I was smiling. Of course I do. Right. And raising my hand. And do you have a defensive system? I said, Absolutely. He said, Do you have a leadership system? And I said, No. I said, No. And I, man, I, it just, um, you know, it made me aware of, Hey, I need to be better at certain things. And that's how I've really evolved, I think, with our program, is um, just identifying what we believe in and then attaching behaviors to those beliefs because everyone has values on the wall, but it's the behaviors that go with it. So, you know, what we did was we identified who made it in our program and who didn't, first of all. I took an assessment of every kid I've recruited for 20 years, why that kid made it, why it didn't, a variety of reasons why they did. There was one reason why they didn't. It was they didn't handle disappointment well. And I needed to find guys that handle disappointment. So we came up with a system of recruiting not to find great players, but to minimize our mistakes. First rule of investment, and it's not just money, it's time, it's energy, it's effort, is don't lose money. And we were trying to minimize our mistakes with recruiting and get the right people in the program. And then we just overhauled the program as far as what we believe in and what were the behaviors that we were going to attach to those values. And um, BCD was one of them. No blame, complain, defend, coaches included. But, um, you know, and we talk about it every day. Uh, we actually, this Friday, we'll have another, you know, uh, focus Friday, 15 minutes. I introduce the concept. They talk about it. I leave them alone for like the last eight minutes so they can talk together and just figure it out. Um, and mostly it's involved in what we believe about ourselves and how we're going to run our program, what the behaviors that we're going to identify that we're going to reward, and which ones we want to eliminate. So for us, it's competitive, being humble, being committed, right? We all know what that means. Having respect, not just for coaches, for yourselves, for your teammates, for people in in the uh, department. Um, uh, Having gratitude, uh, effort all the time, try hard, full effort is full victory. Being resilient, which I think is the biggest thing we're trying to coach, is how we respond to negative events and then being selfless. But um, really what we're trying to coach every single day is our players' response to positive and negative events and trying to coach them through that trying to get them into a place of neutrality where they're neutral about it and not, you know, kind of up and down. Um, But yeah, it really made us do a deep dive in what we could do better. And honestly, the, the thing I could do better was be a better coach, establish more priorities as far as what we value. And then, you know, what are the behaviors you attach to those values? The great Ray Dalio line, people fight for their values. They're likely to fight each other, those that don't share them, right? And we're just trying to all be on the same page and not fight each other about, you know, what we value all the time here in the program.
1: Just incredible stuff throughout, Coach. I can't thank you enough for sharing the game and uh, opening our eyes to your program and all the success that you've had.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and
1: um, great work. Love listening to your podcast and learned uh, learned a ton throughout the years. Well, now you're part of it. And just as a reference, Dave Paulson was number one. He was the first ever basketball podcast. So That's a good guy. That guy's had a huge influence on coaching beyond uh, what we realize sometimes. So that's great. Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com to check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you.